Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. All right, Joey, this is our last episode, our last special episode of Cut for Time, and uh, we're then we're going to take a break for the summer, but yep. it's been, like, it's just been so helpful to be able to receive these questions, pitch them back to you, and mm-hmm. hear what you have to say, so thank you for, like, all of your preparation time and um, time for doing this podcast so that we can get the most out of this four weeks, like, kind of mini-series. Yeah, I tell you what, this has been great. It has been hugely helpful to get people's questions to kind of see like where either, you know, in the prep, like, oh, I missed addressing that question or, oh, I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be or, oh, that's a really, really good clarifying question. Like this has been really fun and really helpful. I've really enjoyed having these extra opportunities to talk more. Yeah, me too. Even um, my husband, Nathan said like, Hey, maybe this just needs to be the format for cut for time going forward. You have people submit questions. And I was like, we ask people to I know we ask for questions, send in questions. I guess we, we need to, maybe we just need to have the, the phone number up there, you know, maybe. questions, text in. So. Yeah. Because it has been really fun and it is, um, you know, I ask my own questions of you and of Jeff when we record cut for time usually, but I don't know if the questions that I have are the questions that everybody else wants to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Hey, we'll come back to this in the fall. We'll restart cut for time with our new series, our new fall series after this one has ended and, uh, we'll see what it looks like, but this yeah, right. Been really fun. For sure. Yeah. We should, maybe we should leave pads of post-it notes in the pews or in the seats so people could write their questions and stick them on my door as they leave. Mm, stick them on Jeff's really door great. as they leave. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's j- jump in here. Can you give us a recap from your sermon on Sunday? Yeah, for sure. So in uh, in the progress of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes from talking about lust and sex and sexuality to talking about divorce. And I think he's doing that because he's talking about the context marriage in which our sexuality is designed to thrive and be a gift to one another. And so talking about divorce, he's saying, okay, he's addressing this question of, of when can a marriage end? When is it appropriate and right for a marriage to end? And in line with the whole biblical witness about marriage, right? That from the very beginning, God created male and female. And it's for that reason that, that a, a man will leave his family, a woman will leave her family, they will join together, become one flesh. And he, so he's, he's doubling down on that one flesh union and saying, don't break that unless it's already broken unless one spouse's actions have broken that, that covenant. And so we, you know, this isn't all in Matthew 5. We had to go to Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and other places to kind of pull in Jesus's teaching here. But essentially he's saying like there, there, are, there are good things that come from that lifelong commitment. Um, we're designed to thrive within a full life commitment in a marriage or in other relationships as well, but primarily he's talking about marriage. And so you can't get out of it easy. Um, you're, you, you need to grow in it and forgive and reconcile and come back together within your marriage, not try to get out of it quickly and easily when it gets difficult. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that was basically the, uh, the whole sermon. And then, of course, we looked a little bit at how Paul applies that in the early church as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you mentioned um, when things get difficult. So yeah. 
uh, could you give us an example for when marriage difficulty might begin to morph into destruction? Because that's a distinction that you made. You were very careful mm-hmm. to make that in last week's episode of Cover Time and in this Sunday's sermon. And mm-hmm. follow-up question, is repetitive behavior a qualification for what you would consider destruction? Yes. Right. That's a great question. So I wanted to very carefully distinguish because what Jesus seems to be doing and how Paul seems to understand Jesus and apply it in the church is that there's a difference between having a difficult marriage or difficulty within your marriage and the core covenantal commitments themselves being destroyed, the covenant itself being destroyed. Jesus says essentially that a covenant is destroyed when one person takes that covenant renewal mechanism, sex, sexual intimacy, takes that and exercises it outside of the covenant, right? As we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, sex is designed to bind two people together in that comprehensive marriage covenant. And so if you take that activity, that action, that covenant renewal service, and you exercise it with someone you're not in covenant with, then you have broken that link with your your spouse. You've broken that covenantal commitment You've taken that activity and exercised it elsewhere, broken the covenant. That's destructive to the covenant. Paul takes that same principle of covenant destruction and says, when one spouse physically leaves, they abandon the other. When one spouse says, nope, I'm out and they're gone, they have that's not just difficulty, that's destructive to the covenant. The comprehensive union, as we define it, of mind, body, will, and spirit, that comprehensive union of will that we are committed to one another and have willed ourselves together is broken. Uh, that that has it's been destroyed. That covenant commitment has been destroyed. So covenant destructiveness an actual damaging or an actual you know destruction of the union is different different from difficulties within the marriage so every marriage goes through difficulties right my wife and i we have difficulties that we have to work through whether it's misunderstandings or whether it's willful sin one of us hurting the other on purpose because we just you know, are so frustrated or we just want to win or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's just neglect or busyness or a unwillingness or an inability to understand the other person's thoughts, feelings, emotions in the moment, things like that. Those are difficulties. And and those are fairly minor, minor difficulties. Others face much uh, much more difficult things um, that, than we have faced in our in our recent past. Others may face the difficulties of you know a spouse who really just doesn't seem to want to learn how to be mo- more emotionally sensitive or available, or doesn't want to learn. It just doesn't want to learn how to be more physically or sexually available, or doesn't want to learn how to be more spiritually nurturing and spiritually connected and available. Uh, uh, who who doesn't want to consult with their spouse and discuss the different decisions that need to be made, but just wants to say, no, nah, eh, you know, what I want is what I want. And so we're just going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are all very difficult things within a marriage when you're rowing in different directions or you're not connected spiritually or all those, you know, any, any number of different, um, different examples could be given there. Difficulty uh, is, when, when we're facing difficulties like that, we're called, I think, by Jesus to perseverance, to faithfulness, um, to even, there, there's, a, there's a branch of courage as a virtue. There's a branch of it that is just faithfulness in the same direction you know, over a long period of time. 
Um, and so the, just the, the faithfulness of showing up daily, even when it's not satisfying, it's not life-giving, it's not affirming. And yet we are governed by that commitment we made in the past to be in a covenantal relationship with this other person. Um, and, you know, in sickness and in health till death do us part, right? All those traditional formulations um, in ease and in difficulty, uh, we're called to be with one another. Even long-term difficulty. Even long-term difficulty. And you can think of the long-term difficulties. Uh, it seems easier to face the long-term difficulties that um, you didn't, that were forced on you by circumstance, not by choice. You know, you think of a long-term illness, a long-term disability, an injury that leads to a disability. Those sort of things seem to be easier to bear than the actual difficulty of another person being difficult. Mm -hmm. where, where the line, and this is why, again, probably the most dangerous thing we can do in this whole topic is try to make rules yeah. so that we, you know, it, it's e rules are so much easier than wisdom it would be so much easier to just say, hey, here's the rules, you break them, then you can do this, you keep them, then you, you, know, you can't. But every one of these circumstances and situations calls for wisdom, for, uh, for spiritual wisdom, for pastoral wisdom to say, okay, have we, have we crossed the line from difficulty to destructiveness? One of the guidelines I think that wisdom would recognize is repeated patterns, especially unrepentant, repeated patterns that continue to not just um, create difficult circumstances, but actively dehumanize the other person by denying some aspect of their, their fundamental humanity, their image of, you know, that they're being made, that they, that the fact that they are made in the image of God. Um, so, uh, constant rejection or diminishment of the other's emotion uh, the other's will, uh, the other's thoughts. Um, you know, we may throw around a term like gaslighting of trying to convince the other person that they're the problem in all of this, or, you know, no, I'm, I'm being totally rational. You're the one who's way too emotional, or you're the right. one who's not right. Um, we all do that to each other in our more sinful, our less sanctified moments. But a constant, repeated, unrepentant pattern of replacing the other person with yourself um, begins to push just difficulty into destructiveness um, and begins to border. We, we may use other terms to describe it, things like emotional abuse or verbal abuse or, or even physical or spiritual abuse uh, when, it, when it rises to that level of, of fundamentally dehumanizing the other, replacing the other with yourself or trying to dominate or control the other. Um, that doesn't mean and uh, I think we have a, another question that came in around this. That doesn't mean that you have to divorce or that you have to separate. Um, there is, there's room within the scriptural understanding of this to, to see people say, I, I'm going to stay in this difficult marriage. Now, I would say if, if it's destructive to the point where you are being threatened physically, you're being threatened with violence, your, your, you know, your life is in danger here, or the safety of your children or something like that is in danger here, then it would be wiser to get out. The, the right thing yeah. to do would be to get out, to separate, to, to step away. Um, either a separation or a divorce to, mm -hmm. to, to separate from that physically dangerous 
because that's not something you can really come back from, right? If right. Physical danger uh, to the point of, of violence or potential uh, destructiveness or loss of life. Like you can't come back from that very easily, mm-hmm. if at all. So get out, get get out of there and then deal with uh, the rest of it. But um, but some may choose with, with support uh, from a church community, from a family, to choose to stay in a difficult marriage or even one in which the covenant has been actively destroyed through one person's actions um, and say, no, I'm going to rebuild this covenant. Um, I'm going to show the faithfulness of God in this covenant. That's not required. And it is a huge sacrifice, uh, the people who who choose to do that. Um, It is really morally exemplary and should be, should be, celebrated um if if not encouraged i'm not sure where the why where wis, what wisdom would say there you know you don't want to celebrate people who stay in difficult things and accidentally um inspire someone else to stay in something very difficult or destructive that then ends up causing real harm yeah. for them um but should be you know it needs to be tackled in a in i think a case by case basis yeah. Do you think that involving other believers is a necessary step when considering divorce? Could it be, yeah. ma- can that decision be made in a bubble? I've, no, it cannot be made in a bubble. And actually it's a fairly modern phenomenon to think of marriage as a private thing, you know, as a decision between two people or even one person's decision. Um, marriage, sex, sexuality, like this has all been this is all community stuff. It has always been thought of as community stuff until just like the last, you know, hundred years or so where we've become very private individuals and, and assume that we're the only ones who get to choose, you know, about this stuff. So a couple of different places from ancient thinkers all the way up to modern thinkers have said like, no, marriage is everyone's business. Mm-hmm. Your marriage is everyone's business in your neighborhood, in your community, in your broader legal structure and culture, in your church culture. Marriage is everyone's, uh, every, we all have a, a vested interest in the health of one another's marriages and families, because when your marriage starts to break down, like there are ripple effects across the whole community. When, when, uh, you know, another marriage breaks down or a family starts to break down, like that affects all of us, not in the sense like, well, we need your marriage to be strong because we don't want to be inconvenienced, but in the sense of like, Hey, you know, we talked last week about the practical side of caring for people who are, are going through things like this. Um, we bear one another's burdens for sure, but part of the way we bear one another's burdens is not just reactively, okay, we're going to care for you as this after a marriage has fallen apart, but proactively, we see this coming, we're going to care for you and, and both spouses and say, no, you, you know, stay, how do we stay in this? How do we work through this? How do we reconcile? How do we soften hearts? How do we, um, commit again to the the value of stability within this relationship so yeah okay i don't know did that address your question yeah i feel like man we got we got like deep really fast and and emotional all of a sudden so (laughs) okay well what if um Okay, whether this decision's made in a bubble or not, somebody mm-hmm. who claims Christ is pursuing divorce without biblical grounds to do so. Like mm-hmm. maybe they're just over it being difficult, right? Right, right. Um, like it hasn't been, it hasn't reached that stage of destruction, but it's ex- they've been exhausted. They have no more patience or desire to continue to be married. Should we, as the rest of the body of Christ, treat this as 
the same as any other unrepentant sin. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do I respond? Oh man, it's a tough question. And again, it, you know, it comes down to wisdom on a case by case basis. I would say in terms of a, of a broad framework, think in the sort of same three movements we talked about last week in terms of helping people. Uh, there's the pastoral response, the prophetic response and the practical response. Um, I really like this accidental three P's that we came up with last like, week. So I'm going to stick you, with this. I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stick with this. So, okay. So the problem initially presents itself. You find somebody who's saying like, oh, you know, I just, I'm not sure I'm in it anymore. I'm not sure it's worth the work. I mean, like, I feel like we're just not connecting anymore or I don't feel loved anymore or, um, and this can be either spouse, obviously, right? Ah, we're yes. just not connecting. We're not, uh, we're not intimate as often as I want, or I just feel like we've drifted apart, right? Right. There's the initial pastoral response. Tell me what's going on here. What are you, what are you searching for? What are you looking for? What's the history of this? Let's do some counseling. Let's talk. Let's find a professional counselor. Let's, um, let's help you guys, you know, okay, so you've drifted apart or you're, you're constantly bickering or you're whatever, like, let's get what's underneath that. What's going on here? Uh. Um, so there's the initial sort of pastoral, um, okay, you're dealing with two people and you're, you're being very sensitive to the two individuals and applying the appropriate truth at the appropriate time to say, hey, how do I help you decide on your own that no, actually, I, I should stay. I should, you know, it is worth it. You yeah. may appeal to places, you know, like, like Matthew 5. Um, you may go to things like the fruit of the spirit and say, hey, you know, one of the fruit of the spirit here is faithfulness. Like, why are you, I feel like you're resisting the spirit's call in your life to be faithful to the commitments you've made, you know, those sort of things. Yeah. But you're really dealing with those two people in a pastoral way. At some point, if, if it continues, you, you do have to shift from sort of the pastoral to the prophetic and say like, hey, I don't, I don't want to come down hard on you here, but what you are pursuing is not biblical. You don't have grounds for this. What you are doing is not permissible for a Christian. Before God, you made a commitment mm -hmm. and you can't just walk away because it's hard. Like that's not what we do. And so whether, whether you think the person's going to respond well or not, it's, it's just, you have to confront it as you are pursuing a sinful path and get prophetic about it and say, here's what the Bible says about this. Um, you know, you're violating a commitment, you're walking out on a, on a promise, you know, all of those things. And, and that's where it, it involves more than just you and your friend. You may need to, uh, if you're both part of the same worshiping community, you need to, may need to bring in an elder or a pastor uh, or someone with kind of the authority of the group to say, hey, as a group, we're saying here, as a church, we're saying to you, this, this isn't okay, mm -hmm. right? This, you're pursuing something that's, that's, that's just like any other sin. Jesus would say, you can't go this direction. You're not just because, Hey, you're breaking the law. You can't go this direction, but like you are destroying your own life. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to do this? You know, if that doesn't work, right. If that doesn't change someone's at least change their mind, if, if it doesn't change their heart, um, if it, if it works great, you, you need to go right back to the pastoral. pastoral. Okay. Yep. How are we going to care for you guys in this? Okay. Yep. We're not just gonna be like, okay, Hey, disaster averted, go back to your dysfunction from before and let us know the next time there's a crisis. No, we're, we're in this now. Right. We're around you. We are going to model this. We're going to teach on this. We're going to, we're going to mentor on this. Like we want, we don't want just a bunch of bad marriages in the church. We want thriving and flourishing marriages. Right. right. Um, but if it doesn't work, 
then we have to go to the, the practical and say, okay, how are we going to care for the person who's being abandoned? How are we going to care for the person um, who is being hurt and being left? Um, primarily, how do we care for that person, the person who's being sinned against? Mm-hmm. And join them in lament, in crying out for justice, in crying out for a changed heart on the other person. Um, but we, you know, we also don't. There's there's a balance there with the the offender, the person who's leaving. On the one hand, you say, look, this this guy is like abandoning his family, or this woman is abandoning her family. Like they're no better than an unbeliever, Paul would say, um, as he writes to Timothy. Like uh, so, there's the sense of you you've broken the the bond of the community here yeah. and you need to be treated accordingly but also this person who's walking away is looking for something and how do we continue to point that desire back to Jesus and say hey you can always come back like you could always we know what you're really looking for um and so we want to care for you as well but so there's some there's that practical side of you may need to continue to be prophetic, pastoral, whatever, to the person who walked away, but the person who's staying, it's like, okay, now this person needs help. Mm-hmm. There's a family involved, there's kids involved. I mean, then it's like, okay, how are we going to help? How are we going to come around you? What do we need to do? We need meals, we need food, we need, we need employment, we need whatever. Like, we got to get practical and help. Yeah. So. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So your next a set of questions I've just grouped around remarriage. So oh, yeah. We're great. Gonna, okay. Um, kind of shift direction slightly into that. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So can you kind of explain what you meant when you said that if you're not reconciled, you should stay single? Can you explain yes. what a reconciliation yes. process could look like? Sure. So that I made that comment as we were looking at First Corinthians 7. And so I want to set that back in its context again. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is writing to uh, men and women who knew believers and who had, had gotten this idea that the, the, you know, the best, the most spiritual state to be in was singleness, celibate singleness. And some were practicing a version of that by being celibate within their marriages and saying, well, we're just going to be, you know, we're going to be holy H O L Y, like we're going to have holy marriages where we abstain from any sort of sexual interaction or sexual intimacy because you know it's more spiritual to be celibate. Mm-hmm. Others had gone so far as to actually divorce and say, no, Jesus was single. Wow. You know, Paul is single, so we we need to get divorced. And one spouse had left the other and said, I'm terminating this marriage because that's what God wants me to do. And so to those people, Paul says, hey. No, <laughs> um, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have divorced out of some sense of spiritualness. And so, to them, he says, if you can reconcile with the spouse that you left because you thought it was more spiritual to be single, mm-hmm. then you should reconcile. But if they don't want to reconcile, then you need to stay single. Mm-hmm. Um, he's saying you you have you have walked away from your one flesh covenant, your union. Um. You've walked away from it, but it, it, it was for a bad reason. It was never actually broken or severed. There was no covenant breaking action other than you walking away. And since you've walked away, you need to stay single. Your old covenant still exists, even if you're not in it anymore. It wasn't, ever, it wasn't broken because of the other person's actions. And so reconcile with them and rebuild that covenant or stay single. You're not free to form a new, a new union with another person. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. What would reconciliation process look like for us today? Yeah, process-wise, um, uh, for us today, well, it's, uh, I'm not sure there's a straight uh, parallel or analogy today, given that that few of us are divorcing out of a sense of, of that it's a more spiritually better to be single. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there is an analogy, it may be to those, like the person we talked about before, who they're both believers, and one's like, I'm just not in this anymore, and they separate. So what would reconciliation look like? Right. I imagine it would be very difficult. I don't think Paul was just saying, oh, yeah, you know, go ahead and reconcile, whatever. Just kind of admit, yeah, eh, I didn't do the right thing and we should get back together. Um, I, I doubt it's that simple. This would be a process of the the offending party, that there needs to be some heart change there of, oh, I have I have neglected a commitment or I have left for the wrong reasons or I have not given this the, you know, what I what I should have been putting into it and has to come to a point of repentance and saying, will you forgive me? But the other person would also have to go through a heart change process of saying, I mean, the natural question is, why would I ever trust you again? Right? Why would I put myself in this position again? Why would I open myself back up to the vulnerability of being hurt when the promise we made to one another was supposed to be the promise that would protect that vulnerability? And when that promise is broken, okay, you can make that promise again, but you've shown that I can't really trust it. So that person is also going to have to go through some some real heart change of saying, I'm willing to take that risk again. And, and that's a very risky thing. Does reconciliation, though, have to end in reunification? I think what Paul is implying here in this particular case is that the reconciliation would result in a remarriage, that, that you're okay. a, a remarriage or a, or a recognition that, hey, that covenant is still there, that sure. union is still there. And so now let's live back within it. Um, okay. It was never actually broken. So we, we move back into it. Um, in our context today, I don't know that it automatically means a remarriage or reunification, as you put it. Um, but but hopefully at, at at least there's a recognition of um, on, on probably on um, I'd say on the part of the offender probably more the one who left um, to say um, hey what I did wasn't I wasn't walking with Jesus the way I was supposed to mm-hmm. it, 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 and, and maybe it's that same you know hardness of heart that we talked about with Moses back in Deuteronomy 24 that Jesus says hey here's the conditions Moses put in place around the way you guys are already doing you're already doing it badly and so he's saying let's do it a little bit better <laughs> and he's yeah. he's giving you this ability to do it a little bit or these guidelines for doing it a little bit better because your hard hearts mean you're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it great. You're not going to do it the way you, you know, God intended from the beginning. Um, so hopefully at least that reconciliation would involve at least a, a, a repentance and, hey, would you forgive me? I didn't do this well. Now, we may not be able to come back from it. The, you know, the offended may not want to risk that again with the person. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to um, say that, well, now you automatically have to take the person back or reunify. But at least for, especially if it's two believers, to say, I, I was not living out the forgiveness and reconciliation I've received in Jesus towards you. And for that, I, I repent and ask for your forgiveness. And, and what happens from there, I think it's up to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So could you address the implications for the rest of the passage, like some specific examples, I guess, around biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. Mm. So um, 
if someone has divorced without biblical grounds, are they allowed to remarry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, again, um, this none of this is going to be satisfying answers because I, I'm going to say again, it, there's it's not it's not about rules. It's a, it's about uh, it's about the wisest way to reinforce the original intention of of marriage um right this is so this is what jesus does in mark 10 and matthew 19 he he says hey i know what the law says but remember what the point of the law is the law is there to reinforce the original vision of genesis 1 and genesis 2 and so paul's Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is there to reinforce the original vision and to say, how do you know if you're, if you're wandering away from that vision? Well, if you bump up, here's a, here's a guardrail on driving towards that, that vision. Here's a guardrail on it. And if you bump up against that guardrail, you know you're veering too far to one side or the other. The, the point isn't to stay within a set of rules. The point is to live towards and live into the vision from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and, you know, Revelation 20 and 21 and all that. Um, So it's it's very difficult to say, or it's not difficult. It's really easy. I could just, you know, I just, here's the, here's the rules. Yep. Here's the rules. Um, And in some, you know, in, in, in a community, you need to have those kind of guidelines, but always remember, always remember the guidelines are there to point us back to the vision. Uh, of what we're supposed to be living into, not just to stay within the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it, we may think of the Christian life. You could think of it sort of like this big open field, and with fences around it. And so you can do you can go anywhere you want in the field, um, just don't jump the fences. And, and that that's a bad image of the Christian life because a field isn't going anywhere, right? A field is just there. Uh, a much better image is more like a road of like we're dri- we're going in this direction we're driving in this destination towards a a way of being in the world a way of living that represents or images well what we were supposed to be from the beginning it's as close as we can get to it yeah and a road has guardrails because if you veer off of that direction you need to be bounced back mm-hmm. you need to be you need to be redirected back into the direction you're trying to go and that that's what the rules are anyway sorry a bit of a, a bit of a digression there. So, can someone be remarried? Um, again, I think community, pastoral, elder, spiritual wisdom has to come into play here. There are some good guidelines. I, I was reading the um, Anglican Eastern Orthodox uh, right for marriage in preparation for this, uh, or the right for remarriage, and they've got some fairly. Um, fairly good guidelines, I think, about, hey, a second marriage, here's what we do. You know, a third marriage, here's what we do. But we don't do fourth marriages, uh, essentially. They're saying like, look, you know, a repeated pattern of marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, the marriage again, it's like, um, it seems hard to to be called on to solemnize that sort of um, repeated pattern of marriage and divorce. So, Gosh, I've lost the thread of the original question here about um, can a person remarry if they don't have biblical grounds? grounds. When they divorced, yeah. Right, right. Again, so so some things to keep in mind. Um, First is divorce is not the unforgivable sin. 
um, the church has a history of holding marriage in such high regard, which is good, mm-hmm. but we have a history of holding marriage in such high regard that you're basically one and done. And, you know, if you screw it up for one reason or another, or your husband leaves you or whatever, then, or your wife leaves you, then that's it. You know what? You had your shot. You lost it. You don't get to try again. That's holding marriage so high that it becomes an idol that either you do it perfectly or you don't do it at all. Right. I don't think that is what uh, Jesus or Paul is getting at here. Um, especially because Paul, he keeps going in, you know, in verse seven about, hey, so, you know, if he stays or if she stays, even if they're an unbeliever, you should go. But if you remarry, it's okay. Like you haven't sinned if you marry and all this. He's saying, he's saying, look, here, here's the image, right? Here's the goal we're shooting for. He does in six and seven. It's, it's this one flesh union is the point. So let's build towards one flesh unions. Um, so keep in mind, we don't hold marriage in such high esteem that it itself becomes an idol. Mm-hmm. Um, and because mar- you know, divorce is not an unforgivable sin, it's not the unforgivable sin, right? Okay, so someone divorced for non-biblical grounds. Now they want to get, re- they, they say they're a believer, they want to get remarried. There's some, if, if a pastor's marrying them or counseling in this, there are of course some questions that should be asked to, to try to, um, to, to try to get at the, the um, kind of spiritual health of the decision that's being made. Not because, hey, I want to make sure that you've got this all figured out before I marry you, but for your own good, uh, let's talk about this. What happened uh, in your first divorce? Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent have you recognized your own, your own sin in that? Um, to what extent have you repented and asked for forgiveness for your own sin in this? Now, I'm not saying that means, okay, now you need to go back and you need to reunify, but you at least need to make right. Yeah. I shouldn't even say make right because it's impossible to make it right, but you at least need to go back and say, you need, you need to have recognized, I didn't do this very well, mm-hmm. right? For the sake of your next marriage, if nothing else, because if you go into the next one thinking you can do the same thing, like, well, when it gets hard, you can always bail right? Uh, Again, that's not living into the vision of a mother or a man, a woman, they will leave their family and become one flesh. So can a person remarry? Can a person not remarry? I'm, I'm very hesitant to say, well, here's the rules. Yep. Say each community, each pastor, each elder group, each whoever's spiritually discerning with them needs to say, okay, what happened? How are, we, how are we dealing with our own sinfulness in this? What are you trying to accomplish going forward? Um, and, and how do we live towards the vision of that one flesh union, um, that yeah. comprehensive union for life? No, I, yeah, that's a good answer. I think it's really wise to not put such firm boundaries around it and create those rules. So um, I, it's a great answer. Um, you mentioned reading a book which denomination was it? What did you say? Orthodox? Oh, I was, I was reading. Yeah. I was looking for um, Eastern Orthodox uh, right of marriage because it, as far back as, you know, second century, third century, right. People are, are struggling with this, you know, the, yeah. the gospel's going out into a pagan world and um, it's just, I almost said it's destroying marriages. It's not destroying marriages. It's bringing people to Jesus who are in fallen marriages. And then they're going, well, now what do I do? And yeah. so it's facing all of these pastoral questions. And so from the, from, from the earliest centuries, 
the church fathers were dealing with this question and we're already dealing with it from a very um, pastoral position and with a lot of pastoral wisdom. And so I, I had run across a reference to Basil of Caesarea and his teaching on it. I, I couldn't find, and I ran out of time to really dig deep into finding his teaching, but the, the sort of Eastern Orthodox church that comes out of that tradition uh, is where I was reading this, this liturgy. Okay. So um, the, it mentioned like, hey, we'd remarry a second time, a third time, but not a fourth time. Mm-hmm. It just leads me to the question, is there a case where you as a pastor would decline to marry somebody? At faith? So like, yeah. so I'm, okay, so, well, at faith or anywhere, someone's asking me, yeah. hey, would, you know, would you, would you marry me? And it's a second marriage or a third marriage or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is there any uh, scenario where you would have to say, I just am not up for that, I'm not able to do that for you? Yeah, boy, I, you know, I think there's a, there's some wisdom in that uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, guideline of, hey, if it's your fourth marriage, like, um, you know, I'm not sure I want to be involved. Um, that It's starting to seem excessive there, but anything less than that let's there would certainly be some some exploratory questions that i would be asking about okay some of the things we already talked about what happened why um tell me why you want to get married again tell me what do you think a marriage is um you know i'd really dig into that stuff of what do you think a marriage is what do you think the commitment is why have the last why did the last commitment or the last two commitments you made not why did they not persist um and would ask some of those those questions for sure Uh, but i would also balance it personally and pastorally i would balance that with um and understanding that hey this is this is the church's opportunity and my opportunity to be part of these people's story and part of their ongoing interaction with the church around not just this issue, but all of the issues of life. And a big part of being, you know, I lean on the pastoral side, not necessarily the prophetic side, uh, which means I'm, I'm dealing out truth when people can hear it and in ways that they can hear it. Man, when this couple starts to struggle, and starts to struggle with the baggage they've each brought from a previous relationship or one of them has brought from a previous marriage or whatever. Like I would so much rather be in relationship with them and be the one that they can call than not. I think it's more likely that the second marriage would persist if they're embedded within a community, uh, a church community, than if they are told, no, it's, you know what, you screwed it up, you're done, you're out. And so um, you're just going to have to go take care of this elsewhere and, 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 but if you have problems, you know, call me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Can you tell me what does it like mean for you as a pastor, the weight and the responsibility that you take on when you agree to marry a couple? Because mm-hmm. as someone married, I know the weight of the feeling of making the covenant, but I don't know the responsibility that we put on the person who's officiating <laughs> our wedding. What do you, what's that weight and responsibility like that you carry that we might not realize that we like put on our officiants? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good question. For me, the most profound part of a, of a wedding is the responsibility of the officiant to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Um, because it is those words um, that create a new being, where create one where before there was two. Um, 
we talked a couple of weeks ago about how sex is so powerful because it, it literally has the power to create new life. And the, uh, the officiant in the wedding ceremony, the one who solemnizes it, whatever, you know, whatever form that takes in, in different cultural expressions. But at some point, one, you know, two becomes one. And to be the, the person uh, who is there saying the words that creates a new, uh, a fundamentally new being out of two of what was previously two people is, uh, is quite a profound moment. Um, so there, there's a weight that I, that you feel when you've, when you're part of creating something new and then you release it into the world and you hope that these two who have become one have, have, you know, have, that you, you've spent enough time with them, uh, and their families and their church and all of that has spent enough time with them that they understand that two has now become one and they are in this union that uh, cannot be easily broken. And if it's broken, um, it is very difficult for either to, to find themselves again, uh, because again, the, the two became one. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weight there. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. All right. So here's your last question. Cut for okay. For this episode of Cover Time, well, kind of. Um, you mentioned in the sermon that with wise counsel and prayer, it's possible for somebody who's in an emotionally or physically abusive relationship to decide to stay in that relationship, yeah, which right. um, you were talking about previously in this episode already. But um, have you counseled somebody in that situation? And what were some of the key factors that mm. um, you would cause you to provide counsel to, for someone to stay in that type of relationship? Um, in an abusive marriage, it would seem mm -hmm. quite dangerous to do that. Um, so how do you discern the way to counsel in one direction or another? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I am, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, I, I lean heavily on those who, who are and those, um, you know, older pastors around me who have a lot more experience with a lot more people um, and a lot more marriages. Um, I, I would never, um, I should put it this way, I would, I would very much hesitate to tell someone, you have to stay. You know, this is, this is emotionally abusive or this is physically abusive or spiritually abusive or sexually abusive or any of those things. Like I, I, I firmly believe that all of those aspects are destructive to the covenant. Now, what's the line between actual abuse and, you know, destructive abuse versus difficulty? We've talked about that a little bit already in terms of repeated unrepentant patterns and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, if a person says, if a person came to me and said, hey, I'm being physically abused, but I feel like God is calling me to stay in the marriage and said, that's not God calling you, okay? At the very least, we got to separate. We got to get you out of harm's way. And um, we need, we need to, to pull back from this and see if reconciliation can happen, but that's going to require a lot of work mm -hmm. um, and with a very low likelihood of success. Someone came to me and said, hey, you know, my husband or my wife is verbally always cutting me down, verbally abusive or emotionally abusive or spiritually abusive or, or those things. Mm -hmm. But I feel like God is calling me to stay. Um, then my response would be something like, are you sure? 
but also, okay, how do we support you in this? Mm-hmm. And how do we call your spouse to repentance uh, and to life change in this area? And do you need to separate in order for that to happen? Um, is staying together the right? Is staying together in the home the right? Um, the right wisest way forward? Um, you know, I can't just to say I can't change your husband. I can't change your wife. They they have to decide between them and Jesus if they want to change, uh, and if they want to grow in this area. If they even recognize that what they're doing is abusive. Um, so, okay, if you want to stay, we want to help. We want to be here practically uh, and pastorally and, and call your spouse to repentance. Um, but again, there's, there's a low likelihood of success. Yeah. So um, definitely requires wisdom. And I, I think it's unwise to say categorically uh, to people, you have to stay until it gets bad, you know, so bad. Um, it's better to say, if you, if you've decided, if you've chosen between you and God, that you're going to stay, that is a huge sacrifice. And we want to help you. Mm-hmm. Will there ever be a scenario where you would step in and say, what is happening is manipulative or abusive. If the person is maybe not realizing that they mm-hmm. are in that type of situation, mm-hmm. is that your place? Is that, is that my place? If not us, I don't know who. Um, on the one hand, um, on the other hand, boy, we'd have to be praying for some real spiritual discernment, uh, with what's going on. And, and, uh, I'll say, I I mean, I want to admit, um, right up front, like I'm, I'm, again, I'm not an expert on this, on these topics. I'm not an expert on abuse, on abuse within a marriage. Um, I have not received near the amount of training I need to, and this has come to light in the last couple of years. Um, I've not received near the amount of training that I need to on even recognizing abuse, um, happening within marriages. I mean, the statistics are just, um, I don't have any of them at my fingertips, but the statistics are, are, um, sobering, um, how much abuse there is within marriages, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, sexual, all of that. So I, I, I'd say I feel unqualified to step in and categorically say, but uh, and categorically say, hey, this is abuse. But I have recognized in the last couple of years that it is better to courageously step into a situation and say, we need help finding out what's going on than it is to say, ah, oh, it's not that bad. You know, we, we should, we just need to work through this. Mm-hmm. I think I've been slow in the past to, uh, step into relationships I've been asked to help with. To, I've been slow in the past to step in and say, "Whoa, time out. We need to get some real help in here that can that can give us a real good, qualified understanding of what's going on." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's hard to move on from that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I'm going to ask you, Joey, to give us kind of a whole series wrap up. We did a sure. mini sure. series within the whole Sermon on the Mount. Um, Give mm-hmm. us a big picture and just kind of like a reminder. Why did we, why was this necessary? Why mm-hmm. did we do this mm-hmm. in the first place? Why not preach through these passages at the same pace that we were doing all the other ones and then move on? Why did yeah. we really need to focus on this? Yeah. So we slowed down to focus on this topic because it's just a huge area of conversation right now. And there's so, I mean, it's always a huge area of conversation, but right now there's so much, uh, 
I'm not going to say there's so much changing in our culture. There's so much um, that has changed that is finally working its way out into all of these different areas that we needed to slow down and we needed to think again hard about, okay, what did, what's the vision from the beginning? What did Jesus believe? What was he taking for granted when he taught within this context? Um, I think if, if I, if I took the whole four weeks and I summarize it into just one phrase, it would be, you are not your own. You know, from First Corinthians 6, looking at that last week, uh, two Sundays ago, especially, you are not your own. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying in Matthew 5, when he's talking about sex and sexuality and lust and adultery and divorce and all of that, he's not saying, hey, I put these rules here because I like rules and I don't want you to break them. He's saying, he's saying, I, I don't want you to destroy your life in this way. Um, by pursuing lust, by pursuing immorality, by pursuing adultery, by pursuing divorce. I don't want you to destroy your life in this way. I have something so much better for you. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, you don't belong to yourself anymore. Don't trust your own desires on this. Don't trust your own intuitions on this. He says, I bought you. I've paid for you. I bought and paid for you on that cross. And, uh, and now this is the way I'm calling you to live for your own good. We've talked about how the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is about wise growth and whole person righteousness that results in reward now and forever. It is wise living for our own good. And Jesus is putting these rules, these limits, these guardrails, whatever you want to call them there, because it's within the guardrails that we do find our, our own and best good for ourselves and for the people that we are in community and in family and in life with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Joey. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, All the time fun. you've put into like studying and doing preparation and preaching and now uh, additional cut for time. We appreciate it. Yeah, it was, it was great and uh, absolutely worth it. It's been uh, a great four weeks. It's been challenging. Uh, it's been difficult, but God has, has blessed and, and uh, it's been good. It's yeah. been good. 